From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On this episode, our team is breaking down the recent town hall for state representative candidates. This was the third and final event that we put on alongside WECT and Port City Daily. And this time, our MC John Evans helped us put candidates for the General Assembly through their paces. We heard from eight candidates in four races. For State Senate, we looked at District 7, which used to be District 9, and still covers most of New Hanover County, except for a small gerrymandered part of downtown Wilmington, which has been sent across the river to Brunswick County. We heard from Republican incumbent Michael Lee and Democratic challenger Marsha Morgan. For House District 20, which covers eastern New Hanover County, we heard from Republican incumbent Ted Davis and Democratic challenger Amy DeLoach. From House District 18, which covers northern New Hanover County and parts of downtown Wilmington, we heard from Democratic candidate Deb Butler and Republican challenger John Hinnant. And from House District 19, which covers parts of Brunswick County, including Leland, the western part of the county, and the southern shoreline near the South Carolina border, we heard from Republican incumbent Frank Eiler and Democratic challenger Eric Tereshima. Okay, first up, I want to get into how the candidates field questions about abortion. This is perhaps the most contentious issue of the night, and my colleague Kelly Kinoyer is here to help me unpack the responses. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. So this has been our radar since May, when Politico broke the story that Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito penned a draft decision removing constitutional protections for abortion rights. Long before the final decision was issued, we knew this was an issue that would help define elections for state reps. Yeah. In August, a federal judge reinstated North Carolina's 20-week ban. Previously, the limit for abortions had been fetal viability, which usually lands between 24 and 26 weeks. And that's where things stand now. A 20-week law that also requires patients to receive state-directed counseling, undergo an ultrasound, and wait 72 hours before they get the actual procedure. So our MC John Evans asked every candidate the same question. If elected or re-elected, would they change the law to be more or less restrictive? First up was John Hinnant. That's the Republican challenger for House District 18. I don't believe there'll be any changes to it without bipartisan support and the endorsement of the governor. I don't feel like we're going to have any positive outcome as a result if we don't have bipartisan support for changing the law. I think anybody who wants to codify Roe might be more extreme than the 20 weeks. 20 weeks is quite late in a pregnancy. So I don't propose any changes without bipartisan support. So right off the bat here, we should point out that it's an open question whether or not Republicans would need bipartisan support to change this law. It's not a secret that Republicans would like a veto-proof majority, which would allow them to push legislation into law over Governor Cooper's objections. Yeah, and just for reference, you know, House Speaker Tim Moore has said that he would prefer what's sometimes called a heartbeat law. That would ban abortions when an ultrasound detects a fetus's cardiac activity. That's usually around six weeks, which in some cases is before someone even knows they're pregnant. In the state's other house, Phil Berger, the president of the Senate, has said he would restrict abortions after the first trimester. That's around 12 to 13 weeks. Some have described Berger as being more moderate than more on this issue, but both would be more restrictive than our current abortion laws. And so when we pushed Hinnant for where he would like to see abortion restrictions, he landed closer to Berger, saying 12 to 15 weeks. And like Berger, he said that he would support exceptions for rape, incest and life of the mother. All right. Next up is Deb Butler, the Democratic incumbent in House 18, who's up against Tennant. Let's be clear about one thing. The Speaker of the North Carolina House has said that if he achieves a supermajority, there will be an abortion ban passed in North Carolina. So any conversation 
that moderates that position is a lie. They have moderated their position on this issue because they recognize that women are irritated by this conversation, that they want rights to control their own bodies, to plan their own families, to make their own educational and vocational choices without interference from the government. So, having said that, the law of North Carolina, in my opinion, should stay exactly the way it is. So, two things. One, Butler's getting at the question of whether there's any incentive for Republicans to, let's be honest, tell the truth about how moderate they intend to be on abortion. And I think that's an unresolvable question because right now we have really we just have to take uh, politicians at their words that that what they say they will do, they will do when they get to Raleigh. But some of the questions we had as follow ups would be, if you really think you are going to be a moderate, how would you defend that against maybe more conservative factions of the Republican Party? And we'll get to that later in the show. Another thing that I want to point out is that Butler says the current law is, quote, satisfactory. We've heard from plenty of people who are concerned that abortion access at 20 weeks is too restrictive and who have concerns about some of the other legal requirements that advocates argue are designed to unduly pressure women out of getting an abortion. So, for example, North Carolina law requires a patient to receive state-directed counseling that includes information designed to discourage the patient from having an abortion. And then they're supposed to wait 72 hours before the procedure is provided. If you live out of town, if it's a long drive, that can be a pretty onerous and expensive prospect for you. She didn't talk about any of those other restrictions, which makes it more expensive and difficult for people to receive those abortions. Um, that's a big contrast to our next candidate, Marsha Morgan, who's the Democratic challenger for state Senate. She said she'd make the law less restrictive. I actually believe that uh, abortion is the right of the woman to choose. There's been a lot of comments that are sort of inflammatory about late-term abortions. That is not really uh, a true thing. Anybody that has been pregnant or been around a woman who is pregnant, when they get into the sixth, seventh, eighth month, they plan to have that baby. They are buying clothes. They picked a name. So the, the question of late-term abortion, to me, is a very moot one. It, it would only be under very extreme circumstances. I think that abortion should be a woman's choice in conjunction with her doctor, her faith, and her family. So Marsha Morgan is addressing here a common trope on the right, which has been misrepresentation of how common late-term abortions are. And even the term late-term abortion can be a little bit fuzzy. So according to the CDC, over 90% of abortions take place during the first trimester. That's the first 13 weeks. And then about 6% take place from 14 weeks to 20 weeks. So just for those liberal arts majors at home like me, that's over 96% of abortions take place before the current law would take effect. And less than 1% of these abortions would take place after fetal viability, and that's around 24 to 26 weeks. Now, we've heard from people who are staunchly pro-life, and they're still thinking about the 300 later-term abortions that can happen in North Carolina every year. And very few of these people had absolutist views on abortion, meaning they weren't completely against all abortion and all contraception or something like that. So I think where the conversation has gone is to focusing on the fact that these late-term abortions are done for medical reasons. And that's Morgan's other point. These are not abortions of convenience, to cite another trope that's come up in these debates, or that it's somehow, like, malicious. These are women who had planned on having a child and something terrible happened. 
Yeah, I want to get into a couple of the uh, exceptions that would lead to somebody getting getting an abortion at that later date. Uh, oftentimes, there's testing, genetic testing, that doesn't show fetal abnormalities until very late in the pregnancy. And sometimes that child per- perhaps could be born alive for a short period of time and then would die within a week. A terrible thing for a woman to go through to have to bear that child out. Sometimes it's that the life of the mother is in danger. And sometimes if the child is still alive, even if they're not actually viable, it can lead to sepsis. And then the woman has to wait until she gets sicker and sicker if there's a life of the mother exception. And it means that this person is sitting in the hospital, getting sicker, having higher and higher medical bills, might have a longer recovery, all because of this kind of legislation. I think that's something that is uh, stated a lot as kind of the carve out that protects women's lives, but it can still have severe consequences for the patients that actually have to deal with the repercussions of this. It's something we'll touch on um, a little bit later, but I think this is part of the humanity of the, the issue that sometimes gets glossed over when we're just arguing about weeks and how the law is actually structured. So, um, all right, next up is incumbent Republican State Senator Michael Lee. I actually wrote an op-ed, I think it was September 3rd, on this particular issue. I think a woman should have the right to choose in the first trimester. And after that, I think there should be exceptions uh, for rape, incest, uh, viability of the fetus, and uh, the health of the mother. You know, there's been a lot said on this issue. This is an incredibly personal issue uh, for a lot of people. And... You know, I wrote that op-ed on September 3rd, and then ads came out. Our own governor came out with an ad against me, telling me that I was going to put women and doctors in prison. And when you talk about people using very personal um, issues for political gain, that's one of them. And to, to say that the speaker is going to make the decision for the state is just wrong. So Michael Lee has done some polling on this in New Hanover County, and he's definitely leaned into this position that he describes as being moderate, um, including that Star News op piece. Uh, And in that piece, he called abortion after the first trimester abhorrent, but he allows for exceptions for rape and incest and to save the mother's life. Those are exceptions we don't have on the books right now. So as with Phil Berger, president of the Senate, Lee is more moderate than Speaker Moore, but stricter than the current law with a ban after the first trimester or 13 weeks compared to the 20 weeks that we have right now. So while it's clear many on the left think this moderate position is disingenuous, pointing to Lee's history of voting with his party, that's not exactly evidence that he would lie about his stance on this. So we thought a more important question would be, what would you do if, after the elections, the Republican Party attempts to push on with this kind of restriction that Moore has voiced support for? How would you pull them more towards your position? And here's what his answer was. Through um, negotiating and trying to get folks to feel the same way that I do. And if they try and be more restrictive than what I've written in that op-ed, I'm going to vote against it. As for Lee's point that the speaker doesn't make decisions for the state, well, we'll put a pin in that because the issue came up again later with other candidates. Okay, let's now go to House Race 17 and Democratic challenger Eric Tereshima. The current state's abortion laws are far too restrictive. I would work towards an end state just like what Ms. Morgan described. The decision for an abortion is between a woman, her faith, her doctor, and her family, period. So unlike some of the other candidates, Eric Tereshima's answer doesn't really require a lot of unpacking. Um, I don't know if you could say the same for his opponent, incumbent Republican Frank Eiler. Pay very close attention to the speaker. And uh, he's not just a speaker for Republicans, he's a speaker for the whole House. And what he said once that decision came out 
this is much too important to take up and try to uh, codify or do anything in two weeks before we adjourn on July 1. So uh, he said we will have a full debate and discussion in the next session where uh, we'll get full input from citizens, doctors, scientists. Uh, I'm adding that. He said we'll have a full debate and discussion. I'm adding there will be input and hearings. Uh, and so I think at that point, uh, we can come up with a reasonable uh, bill at that point. But uh, uh, I think any, any uh, effort to, to second guess or out guess what can happen with 170 lawmakers and the governor uh, is a little bit foolish at this point. However, uh, I think that uh, in the first trimester and the other things that have been said, uh, I think there's room there to come up with a good, good plan. And of course, you probably noticed that he didn't actually answer the question, which is what would you vote for if elected or reelected? So we pushed him a bit and asked him what his actual position on the law would be. And he again sort of declined to get specific. Here was his response. I don't know at this point, but right now it's what, 20 weeks. And I think that's uh, that's reasonable at this point. But I'm not a doctor and I'm not a not a woman. So I'm not going to bet on that's the best deal. <laughs> Eiler really didn't give away very much here, and while he did say that there would be an extensive debate next year, he's probably the only lawmaker who we've spoken to who didn't seem to have a sense of what they'd want to do with the abortion law. Again, there's a question here of would he stand up to Tim Moore in the House? Uh, Eiler gave him more a lot of deference in his response. In fact, he actually talked more about Moore than about his own perspective. And I think two things are true here. Certainly people have differed with Moore within the Republican Party, but Moore is a very powerful politician, He, you know, who's, whose reach extends, you know, from the western border to the eastern border of North Carolina. So I don't know. That's still an open question is, you know, how hard would people actually go? Would I be overstepping to assume that he might go with Moore's opinion if he's mostly talking about Moore and his description of what he would do on abortion? I think you can parse this a little bit by looking at how different candidates talk about Tim Moore. Um, you know, certainly Michael Lee and Ted Davis has talked about him as being, you know, one member of the legislature. But Frank Eiler says, you know, he's not just the speaker for the Republicans. He's the speaker for the whole House. So I think that level, again, that level of deference suggests to me that Eiler is more likely to go along with more. But again, uh, we can't really say it is it is kind of a, a guessing game at this point. All right. Moving on to House 20, here is Democratic challenger Amy DeLoach, who didn't shy away from criticizing the voting record of her opponent, incumbent Republican Ted Davis. Well, I do believe that an abortion is the sole right of a woman to make. She should be able to make her own health care decisions and be able to know when and decide when she wants to start a family. The government has no business in this decision at all or at any point. Now, what I'm concerned about are the scare tactics that the Republicans are using. Ted just mentioned that women are having abortions the day before. Y'all, that just doesn't happen. There um, there are abortions that are happening in the third trimester, but that's only under the most difficult of circumstances. And it's an excruciating decision for a woman to have to make. In addition to that, it's happening 1% of the time in the third trimester. This is medical news that no woman would want to hear. Like Marcia said, in the third trimester, a lot of women have already picked the names for their children and they bought cribs. They are committed to carrying that baby to term. 
I am glad to hear, Ted, that you are so, um, that you're willing to let women have abortions in this state. The problem that is, is the way you vote. You voted consistently to make it more difficult for women to have abortions. So though your thoughts and prayers might be with these women, your vote hasn't been. So Amy DeLoach here is reiterating a point that Marsha Morgan has also made about the rarity of late-term abortions. And this is kind of what a lot of the actual debate is really about, is those late-term abortions, because almost all the candidates who are up there today uh, agreed that a first-term abortion should be legal. And Deloche is actually getting again to sort of what that scenario is actually like, like what is actually happening to a human being who is pregnant and who has to make that kind of um, decision. I also want to make a quick note that some of the things she is talking about when we're talking about making it more difficult to get an abortion include, you know, recent additions to North Carolina law um, that were very contentious at the time, like the ultrasound requirement, which was added, I believe, in 2013. This was from the Democratic point of view, designed to be a direct impediment, basically to you know scare someone out of getting an abortion, even though that's a decision they had already made. Uh, this law has been litigated back and forth in the courts for years. And this is part of what got um, struck down in 2019 by a federal judge and then reversed this August by the same federal judge. I will say, I think that this is a strategy that a lot of the Democratic candidates are moving forward with, not just in this debate, but in the advertisements that they put up against their opponents. Democrats are trying to make their Republican opponents seem more extreme on abortion, uh, whether they've got a record that shows that or not. But in the case of Ted Davis, it's kind of interesting because he has a record of being a little bit more strongly opposed to abortion. But that's not exactly what he said in this debate, which we'll hear in this next clip. Abortion is a very emotional, personal decision. There are people on the far left that want to be able to have an abortion up until the day the child is born. There are people on the far right that don't want an abortion to be allowed at all. I'm an attorney, former prosecutor. I believe in the letter of the law. I support what the law is right now in North Carolina, and that is that a woman can have access to an abortion up to the first 20 weeks of pregnancy. Then after that, in order to have an abortion, I believe in reasonable restrictions. And those reasonable restrictions are incest, rape, viability of the fetus, or the health of the mother. So much has been said about the fact, as Ms. Butler alluded to, that, well, the speaker has said that we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the speaker is one of 120 members of the House. The speaker does not tell me what to do. I've had issues with the speaker before where he has wanted me to vote a certain way, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. I don't think that's what's best for the people I represent, and if you want to take issue with it, that's fine, but I am not going to vote the way you want me to, and I haven't. So I'm not going to be influenced, as Ms. Butler wants you to believe, because the Speaker of the House might say what he might want to do, but that in no way, shape, or form means that's what I'm going to do. So I can say Davis says he'd fight against the speaker, and he has bucked the conservative establishment in North Carolina in the past. For one, he was one of the first conservatives to come back and be in favor of film subsidies after the Republican Party let the old tax incentive program sunset, um, which many blame for driving, you know, tens, if not hundreds of million dollars of film business out of the state. There was a real debate about whether or not subsidies to Hollywood was a thing the Republican Party should be doing. And Davis said, look, these are creating good paying jobs in my district, so I'm in favor of it. In fact, I believe it was a $30 million subsidy program the first year, and Davis said he wanted to see more. And he also went against Phil Berger when it came to PFAS legislation. And Berger didn't hold back. I remember getting a press release back in the Port City Daily Days that basically said uh, Davis's bill is pointless and does nothing. So 
He is not afraid to cut across the conservative grain. Whether or not he would do it for this cause, again, is just speculation on our part. But what we can say is that his rhetoric on abortion has definitely been stronger in the past. And in addition to some of the abortion restriction laws that Amy DeLoach was referring to, there's also the 2019 Born Alive bill, which Davis actually spoke about in a recent podcast put out by the New Hanover County GOP. In fact, it came out on the day of our town hall, so it's safe to say he still feels this way. Um, And in talking about that bill, which Democrats ultimately defeated, Davis characterized his Democratic opponents in Raleigh as celebrating abortion rather than celebrating a political victory. And this is actually something John Hinnett also brought up in his closing remarks during our town hall. So it's still clearly part of the Republican collective consciousness. So while Davis came across as fairly diplomatic during our town hall, it's clear that he still has really strong feelings about the issue, and I think that's probably true on both sides. Whether that's Michael Lee pointing to ads run by Governor Cooper, accusing him of wanting to put women and doctors in prison, or Amy Deloge talking about the misrepresentation of how often late-term abortions happen, there's a lot of heated and in some cases overheated rhetoric around this issue. And I will say the one thing all candidates seem to agree on is that this is the most emotional and personal issue that has effectively appeared on the ballot in a long time. So we encourage you, watch the whole town hall and obviously make your own decision. All right, well, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, Kelly Kunoyer and I will have a lot more to unpack from our town hall, including the candidates' answers to tough questions on gun control and inflation. And later in the show, my colleague Rachel Keith will help us dig into responses to questions about education funding and indoctrination in the schools. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman here with my colleague Kelly Kenoyer, and we're unpacking our recent town hall for candidates for state office from around the Cape Fear region. We put questions from our newsroom and the audience to all eight candidates for these four races, and one of the tougher ones was gun control. So this was a tough question, particularly because of the timing. There was a mass shooting in Raleigh less than a week before this forum came to Wilmington. So asking the state legislature about gun control, kind of a contentious issue. Some of them did say that they would want to ban certain guns, particularly assault rifles, especially the two veterans who are running, Eric Tereshima and Marsha Morgan. Yeah, Eric Tereshima has done numerous combat tours and made a point of saying, when you've seen what these weapons can do, up close. There is no reason for the average everyday person to own them. He also made the added point that, you know, U.S. Marines do not get powerful, uh, you know, high capacity automatic rifles on their first day of service. In fact, I think they take a very long hike with a very heavy pack, but they get extensive training on how to use these weapons. And when they are not actively using them, they are locked away. And that is obviously not the current state of gun control laws in North Carolina, let alone the United States. But that was kind of where he was coming from. His opponent, on the other hand, Republican incumbent Frank Eiler, said that we don't need more gun laws. We just need to enforce the ones that we already have. He claims there were 225,000 gun laws already on the books. We have 225,000 gun laws right now. Uh, Enforcement would be very nice. 
So, to be fair, it does sound like Eiler said 225,000 gun laws, but he's probably referring to the 20 to 25,000 gun laws that have been an NRA talking point for as long as I can remember. In fact, the NRA usually refers to there being 20,000 gun laws. And for what it's worth, that's plausible. There are 19,500 municipalities in the United States and over 3,000 counties. So if every one of them had just one gun law, that would give you the number the NRA often cites. But again, that would be nationwide, not for North Carolina. And of course, enforcing the laws in the books would help cut down on gun violence. Things like going after ghost guns or gun trafficking or unregistered gun owners would all be ways law enforcement could help keep dangerous weapons out of the hands of dangerous people. But the media has made a point of noting all of the times that mass shootings have been committed with legally owned guns. And so, well, yes, you could certainly arrest someone afterwards and take their gun away. And there are actually provisions in almost every county I've visited where sheriff's offices can take away guns when there's uh, domestic violence issues or protective orders. Those are all reactionary moves. So, again, I think it's fair to say that's part of the puzzle, but not the whole issue. Other Democrats also had further things that they were concerned about. Marsha Morgan, for example, mentioned waiting periods. Uh, that's something that often helps uh, people who are maybe considering a violent act. If they have to wait 72 hours, they're not as likely to do it after the fact. All of the candidates pretty much mentioned mental health as something that's a major important element of preventing gun violence, which is an interesting point. I think that's particularly true for cases like suicide, which are the most common gun-related deaths and not the ones that are as politically motivating as, you know, mass shootings. Uh, but it's less clear that there's a direct tie between the mental health of a shooter in a mass shooting and them actually committing that shooting. That's less of a clear tie unless you're talking about um, discontentment, something like that, that could be resolved with normal counseling. Yeah, I think part of the problem here is that people's intuitions about gun violence aren't great. And they try to extrapolate the entirety of the problem out of individual high profile events. Now, I would take almost any path that gets us to increased funding for mental health help. That would be great. But again, we've just seen so many shootings with legal guns and people who were not, you know, in the care of a psychiatrist or a or a mental health professional. I will say mental health has been the thing that a lot of people point to after a mass shooting, but that doesn't necessarily mean they follow through and fund those services to a higher degree. We haven't seen mental health funding in significantly higher rates uh, because of these shootings necessarily. We haven't seen new legislation covering mental health other than, I think there was a bill last year that basically just covered some administrative shifts in the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. And actually the state's money that it's been putting into that department has decreased over the past few years. It's gone down by tens of millions of dollars. So I'm not sure that we're seeing these politicians putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah. And we'll have links to some of that funding information you cited on the page. We actually heard some interesting points out of Republicans about the lack of value in increasing gun control, given how close we are to South Carolina. Hinnant actually made the point that even if we did enforce stricter gun laws, folks in Wilmington could just drive down to Myrtle Beach, pick up whatever they want to buy and drive back here. He also pointed out that uh, mass shootings are by no stretch of the imagination the most common. It was truly suicide and then followed by that interpersonal gun violence. So he pointed to primarily mental health services. 
Uh, Butler, on the other hand, had a who's his opposition and the incumbent in that seat. She had a lot of specific policies that she actually pointed to the most of any of the politicians who answered this question. She talked about an assault weapons ban. She mentioned universal background checks, bans on people with mental illnesses, taking uh, being able to purchase guns and bans for people who have a history of domestic violence or have a domestic violence protection order against them from ever being able to own a gun. So she had very clear policy outlines that she wanted to point out. Those were stronger policies, more clearly dictated policies than any of the other candidates brought up. Some of the policy suggestions that Butler made would actually address handgun violence. And for me, watching the gun control debate, handguns have been kind of the elephant in the room. And there's been a lot of attention to the AR-15 as kind of the stand-in for modular semi-automatic rifles, and with good reason. With a high-capacity magazine, a weapon like that can allow one person to kill and injure a lot of people in a short period of time. And it's been used in a lot of mass shootings. That much injury and death all at once in a short period of time shocks the conscience, and it politically motivates people. But weapons like the AR-15 aren't responsible for most of the gun violence. In fact, if you look at gun violence in Wilmington, that's almost exclusively handguns we're talking about. And this is probably an issue we're going to have to save for another podcast, but I will say, as a reporter, the conspicuous omission of handguns in the gun control debate strikes me every time. Okay, now shifting gears to an issue that the right and left have approached differently, but certainly everyone is feeling right now, is inflation. Yeah, we had uh, John Evans ask all of the candidates the same question for this as well. And it was basically, how will your policies help families deal with inflation? And is minimum wage one of the options, raising the minimum wage, one of the options you would consider? Uh, We got into this partially because we know that inflation is, uh, at least on the Republican side at the national level, largely being blamed on the federal government. And we definitely saw that that was the case with the local candidates as well. So let's just start by getting into it. Uh, We will start with Ted Davis. He basically said that there are a couple things that the legislature has already done. He pointed to his record. He said uh, they capped the income tax, they capped the gas tax, and they capped the sales tax. And he mentioned that there's a $1 billion reserve that they set up in the budget that they'll be able to rely on to help people if there's a recession. So that was his answer. His opponent, Deloach, tried to put the blame for this rising inflation not on the national Democrats, but on causes like the war in Ukraine and supply chain issues, as well as price gouging by corporations. So she put some of the blame on greedy corporations. She suggested, as far as solutions go, providing free breakfast and lunch for school children, temporarily suspending the gas tax, and incentivizing developers to build more affordable housing. Yeah, and two quick things here. One, we did push back on Amy Deloach during the town hall about suspending the gas tax because it would help a little bit with the cost at the pump, but it's not the main driver of gasoline prices. But it is a big part of NCDOT's budget, and one of the issues we've been dealing with here in the Cape Fear region is crumbling infrastructure. Which leads me to the second thing I want to say really quick is that we had Frank Eiler up there. He is the chairman of the House Transportation Committee. So we took the opportunity to ask him what is going on with a potential replacement for the Cape Fear Memorial Bridge, which is running out of time. The most recent suggestion was a very unpalatable idea for a toll bridge, which was roundly rejected by a number of local officials. I mean, this is a question we got in multiple forms many times from the audience and from listeners and viewers and readers from our three media outlets. And Frank Eiler did not really have a concrete answer. So there you go. Let's talk about the state Senate race here. Uh, Let's start with Marsha Morgan, who's the Democratic challenger. This was her answer on whether to raise the minimum wage. I think we do need to increase the minimum wage. It's kind of a criminal situation when 
our teachers, our firefighters, um, our first responders can't afford to buy a house, can't afford to live in a, anywhere close to where they work. As you kind of mentioned, Ben, that's a major issue affecting people in the Cape Fear region. Yeah. And of course, North Carolina minimum wage is set at the same level as federal minimum wage. It hasn't, like other states, sort of increased that. And there is definitely an acute pressure here in southeastern North Carolina because we are a very desirable place to live, which drives up the cost of living uh, and to a lesser extent, the cost of goods and services. But definitely housing is the critical issue here. There are a lot of people who work in the service industry who are being paid $10, $12 an hour uh, that would benefit from seeing a higher minimum wage. She also had a couple other policies that she mentioned. She suggested revisiting the tax structure to make corporations pay more taxes than individuals. And she said the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. As for her opponent, Michael Lee, he said we should keep doing what we're doing. He pointed to the zero tax bracket for a family of four making poverty wages. I believe it's around $25,000 a year and tax cuts for the median family. He said 37 percent lower taxes for the median income family in North Carolina. He also said that he's helping uh, state staff workers uh, or government workers have higher wages. So non-certified staff are getting $15 an hour in schools around the state now. And he put the blame squarely on the federal government for all of this inflation, pointing to high spending that came after the pandemic. Yeah. And look, there's certainly been a lot of uh, accusations against current President Joe Biden. They've said this is Biden's recession or Biden's inflation. And I feel like... From everything I read, I'm not an economist, but it is much, much more complicated than that. Certainly the pandemic, which generated a lot of people at home ordering a lot of stuff, especially once they started getting stipend money um, from the federal government and unemployment benefits that in some cases exceeded what they were making prior to the pandemic. So you have a lot of money put into the economy. A lot of people have free time to buy stuff that totally turned the supply and demand structures upside down. And so you can probably criticize how the Biden government has dealt with that, but you probably can't look at it in isolation. It's I just don't think that's possible. Now, saying that a lot of these things happened at the federal level, that is true. I mean, certainly the response to the pandemic happened at the federal level. Uh, The Fed, that's the federal level. So to a certain extent, yes, the state is left to deal with problems that have happened way above their pay grade. But you still got to do something. Yeah. I do want to talk about her opponent, John Hennon, and his ideas of how to help people who are struggling in this economy. I would eliminate the state business tax earlier. He also said that he would reduce the gas tax, fund down payment assistance for home buyers, and he said he's open to raising the minimum wage, but not necessarily all the way to $15 an hour very quickly. He kind of wants a tiered approach. I can understand Hinnon's point of view. Uh, for a long time, he ran uh, WDI in downtown Wilmington, so he knows a lot of downtown business stakeholders. It is difficult to jump from $7 to $15, but as you pointed out, m- most successful businesses anyway are paying people more than $7 an hour. But the idea that you would create the absolute ground floor by setting a state minimum wage and that raising that all at once could be tough on businesses, I've certainly heard that from business owners. So as far as cutting the corporate tax rate, that is certainly a Reagan-esque economic theory. Um, I have yet to see anyone bring me evidence that it works, especially at the state level. I'd like to hear more about how that actually um, helps people deal with inflation right now. As for his opponent, Deb Butler, the incumbent, she said yes on increasing the minimum wage. She also said that they should reinstate the earned income tax credit, which she says Republicans did away with some years ago. And she also suggested, as far as taxes go, raising the standard deduction. So that would put more money back in people's pockets come tax season. 
In Brunswick County, uh, Eric Tereshima suggested raising the minimum wage, and he was, again, as is his style, was very direct in blaming uh, corporate greed, effectively. And it's worth pointing out that despite the fact that inflation is at the highest level I've seen it in my adult life, corporate profits have been coming in very strong. As Kai Rizdahl says, the stock market is aliens. Um, so there seems to be a disconnect with how well the corporate world is doing versus how well the people living in the same country under the same economy are doing. This is something we heard for a cu- from a couple different Democratic candidates. They pointed to uh, all of these significant profits, price gouging, as Amy Deloach pointed out, coming from corporations as part of the cause of the inflation and a reason to tax those corporations who are winning those enormous profits. As for his opponent, Frank Eiler, uh, he said that he blames the federal government for printing money. That's a quote. And he said that to help folks who are struggling in this economy, especially people who are very low income, he wants to get rid of the 2% grocery tax. That was something he mentioned in his opening statement, and he pointed it out again. Uh, as for the minimum wage, he said that would just get passed along to the consumer, so it's not worth doing. And again, to be fair, we are asking candidates about how they would deal with an issue that involves geopolitical economic structures that are way outside their wheelhouse. Um, And for example, you know, Eiler talking about reducing the 2% grocery tax would not completely erase 10, 11, 12% inflation increases at the grocery store. So we're not asking them to cover the whole nut of what has been caused by, you know, major financial moves, but we're just trying to see how they would do their part to help ameliorate some of that damage. I will say there are specific things that are worse here in the Cape Fear region than in other parts of the country. The inflation in rental costs and home prices is driven by significant demand in this area. And that was something that was really only addressed by a couple of the candidates, uh, notably by John Hennant, who talked about having down payment assistance for people who are trying to buy in this area. And also Amy Deloach talking about trying to incentivize developers to build more affordable housing. Otherwise, that element of the inflation wasn't really touched on by the candidates, even though that's the main element that's being discussed here locally. Yeah. And just a quick note on that. Um, Eric Tarashima did say that he would be uh, in support of some major moves to help curb these rent increases. Um, that would violate state law. So we asked him about that. And he said, that's the whole point of writing new laws. So rent control, rent control. Um, I don't know how much traction that would get in Raleigh, but it is that was something that he put on the table. All right. All right. Well, that seems like a good place for a break. Kelly Kinoyer, thank you as always. Thanks for having me. And when we come back, we'll have our colleague Rachel Keith, and we're going to talk about some of the questions we asked individual candidates. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm here with my colleague Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. And we're digging into a couple of questions we had for current state senator Michael Lee. And this is not to pick on Senator Lee, but these are two important issues, namely Leandro funding and allegations of indoctrination in the schools. And we've discussed throughout this episode the power structure in the General Assembly. There's been a lot of commentary and back and forth about how just how powerful House Speaker Tim Moore and Senate President Phil Berger are. Some people have referred to them as being, you know, one of 120 representatives or one of 50 senators. And other people acknowledge that they have a bit more power than that. Another part of this power structure is committees. And as Rachel, as you know well, because you've reported on this, Michael Lee sits on two important committees. 
Yes, he sits on, he's actually the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee on Education, and he's also the chair of higher education. So he does control a lot of issues dealing with higher ed and education and funding, too. And one of those issues is what is now referred to by the shorthand of Leandro. So I want to play, the, the question was, would you you know sign on to releasing the full Leandro funding? And then we can unpack what this all means. So here is State Senator Michael Lee. Uh, as far as Leandro funding, as you all know, that was that was a lawsuit brought by five uh, low-wealth counties in 1994, and the Leandro lawsuit's been going on ever since. And so you've got a lawsuit between the General Assembly and the governor, and you've got a plan that was promulgated by the courts that essentially set forth a plan for education pre-pandemic that is, in my opinion, outdated. There are a lot of things in Leandro that have been enacted in, in uh, our legislature, as far as Leandro, I, I do think that, that there's some other things that we need to be looking at. Okay, but short answer version of this, there's hundreds of millions of dollars on the table that aren't going to public schools. Would you support providing that? Um, I do every single year. We increased it by $2.5 billion in this last cycle. I do think that there's some value in the, the plan that was developed by the consulting group out of California, but I don't think that we need to take the report wholesale, especially since it's a pre-pandemic document that really is out of touch with where we are right now gotcha. and the learning right. loss we've experienced over the last couple of years. Okay, so that was our back and forth with Senator Lee. Rachel, help us unpack this Leandro issue. What's going on here? It's quite complicated. Again, he's, he gave a pretty good summation of what happened. And again, this case has been going on since the mid-90s. And right now, it's just in limbo. I mean, Judge Lee, not related, said that he wanted the legislature to release $1.7 billion this year. And they are fighting that. They do not want to do that. And the state Supreme Court is a toss-up this midterm. So we don't know if they will be more favorable to releasing the funding and making the legislature pay for it, or will it swing the other way and they're more deferential to the legislature and what they want to do? But the incoming, let's just call it the incoming class of representatives and state senators is going to have a huge say in how this gets played out. Yes. And uh, you you should correct me because I said hundreds of millions, but really the, the stakes here are Uh, order of magnitude higher. We're talking about billions of dollars for education. Yeah, the overall total of this entire plan is over $5 billion. Okay. And this is tied up with something that you've reported on, and we'll have links to that on the page, called Pepsi. Yes. For people that don't know, the Professional Educator Preparation and Standards Commission. And I brought in the chair of that committee, and he's actually the dean of the UNCW's Watson College of Education, Van Dempsey. And he said it's a lot riding on this new licensure plan for teaching, and the licensure is tied up in salaries. So, for example, right now, the starting base salary for North Carolina teachers is around $37,000. That rises based on experience to about $54,000. But under the new draft model, the Pepsi model, education degrees would start at $45,000. And then educators who ultimately reach this expert teacher license could reach almost $72,000, for example. So it's basically saying that the legislature should increase teacher salaries significantly. And if this gets adopted in November or December, then the legislature is going to have to fund it. So there's a lot riding on what comes out of this Pepsi committee and what they recommend to the General Assembly and what they recommend to fund. So yeah, again, a lot of moving parts, and we'll, we'll have some links to that on the page. 
The other issue we asked Senator Lee about is indoctrination. And you wrote a long-form piece that's nominated for an award. Yes. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, over the summer about indoctrination in schools. And this is Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson's basically inquest into that. So I want to play our question for Michael Lee. We asked him basically, since he stood behind Robinson, literally, how he feels about it. Well, there was a lot of emails and other evidence that came through that process, and that led us to see a lot of things that were going on within our state and actually led to the Parents' Bill of Rights um, that myself, Senator Berger, and uh, Senator Ballard actually put forward. Even though a lot of things we originally thought the statute already covered, it didn't. Parents weren't able to get information. Parents weren't disclosed, especially with young children, at certain types of surveys their children were taking. Maybe a bit more to the point. Do you believe teachers are indoctrinating students in liberal ideologies in public schools? I do think that happens in some public schools, yes. Um, I'm not saying that every public school does it. I'm not saying that every teacher does it. I do think that, that most teachers don't do it. But I have seen very specific evidence that came through to the General Assembly that had things in it that, that most people wouldn't want to see. And so that's why we thought that with the Parents' Bill of Rights, that a parents had the opportunity to request some of that information. And so that's why I thought the Parents' Bill of Rights was so important to be able to get that particular information so people could choose for themselves on, on what they thought about the information being uh, taught. Just really quickly, would you say when indoctrination does happen, is that systemic or are these isolated incidents? Um, as far as statewide, um, I don't think it is systemic, but I do think there are instances in particular school districts where it's much more pervasive than other school districts. So what Michael Lee's saying sounds a little bit more nuanced and a little less hair on fire than some of the things we've heard from the right about indoctrination in schools, especially when you line it up with some of the things Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson has said. Yeah, I mean, this report, it came out in August of 2021, and it's a pretty comprehensive trying to say that teachers and staff are indoctrinating kids in liberal ideologies. And I did a report on that and asked local stakeholders what they thought about it to see if they're also seeing this. Yeah, and I think this lines up with some of the conversations we've had about things that are going on in our own school districts here in Brunswick County, New Hanover County, Penner County. There have certainly been reports of teachers who, for example, as Pete Wildeboer pointed out, were teaching about the 1898 massacre and coup d'etat uh, in an inaccurate way, saying that basically Republicans were the bad guys when it was actually white supremacist Democrats, former Confederates. So what we haven't seen is anyone bringing us forward anything that's happening at the curriculum level, at what we call the systemic level, where there's a master plan in place here to indoctrinate kids into some kind of liberal ideology. Right. So... The response to this, right, has been both the state and the local level an increased push, and you've seen this on campaign signs, for what's called parents' rights. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this operate at our local level. I mean, at the July board meeting, the board decided that parents will have to opt in for sex education for fifth through eighth graders, but they're maintaining that high schoolers would have to opt out. And Will, Pete Wildeboer, he's the incumbent, he's also running for the New Hanover County School Board, was the lone dissenter because he wanted for this option for high school too. I mean, so there is this shift and there is strong political ideology that say parents have to basically micro 
manage what's happening at the school system and they have to be and and again I mean all of this curriculum is online they can talk to their teacher they can talk to staff there's information is being provided if you ask the school district they will give it to you yeah and you know I think the district has been pretty clear about that but there's still a local push to basically do a 2.0 version of this right yes I've seen some people come to the call during the audience and they say they're collecting evidences of these liberal indoctrination and they call it FACTS 2.0 and the FACTS stands for again Lieutenant Mark Robinson's report fairness and accountability in the classroom for teachers and students. Yeah and just briefly how have some of the other candidates for our local state representative races weighed in on this? I know you've looked at uh, Amy Deloche and John Hennett, for example. Yes. So you heard Michael Lee reference the Parents' Bill of Rights, and that passed in the Senate, but they did not send it to the House because they knew that Governor Cooper would veto it. And basically, we have Amy Deloach, who's running against Ted Davis in House District 20. She said on her website she wants to change, quote, the conversation away from culture war to topics such as banning books and towards solutions such as expanded pre-K, improved teacher pay, and reliable internet in every classroom, end quote. And then you have someone like House District candidate John Hinnett, who said about education, all of it is about parental rights. And he said, quote, North Carolina needs statewide leadership on banning critical race theory. We should never teach children to hate or identify others as oppressed. Let's promote civics, American ideals, and constitutional principles, end quote. So this parent's bill of rights that Michael Lee said that he supported, someone like Amy Deloach, if she got voted into office, she would probably vote against it. If you have someone like John Hinnett, he would probably support that. Yeah. So definitely an issue that we'll have to continue to follow after the election. Yes. All right. Well, Rachel Key, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Newsroom. Thanks to my colleagues, Rachel Keith and Kelly Kinoyer. Thanks to all the candidates who participated in this and our other town halls. Thanks to our friends and colleagues at Port City Daily and WECT. And thanks to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Fernell. If you missed any part of this episode, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have comments, concerns, or ideas for a future show, send us an email at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Shockman, reminding you that early voting is open now until November 5th, and Election Day is November 8th. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>